Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. I will give it a go. <coughs> One's presence down here with me. I lift my 200-pound head up off my chest. A silhouette stands in the doorway, backlit by the unrelenting sun. Girl, I would knock, but you ain't got a door. Girl, you in there? The Marilyn Monroe voice belongs to Angela, a six-foot-tall Nicaraguan ladyboy. She's stunning. Black cat eyes, black shiny shoulder-length hair, cherry red lips, and legs that put any supermodels to shame. Angela just got out from doing three months in jail. She's still in the men's clothing the county gave her upon her release. I'm annoyed she found my hideout, but I try not to show it. There aren't any steps, and she has to jump down onto the dirt floor. She glances at our surroundings and asks, How you living? Large. We howl with laughter and hug. Preciosa, give me something to wear and some whore paint. I need to get out of this boy drag. I'm keeping a low profile until I go into this drug program in the desert. I got bumped up the waiting list because of the SIDA. You should come with me. SIDA is Spanish for AIDS. Don't be a vibe slayer, I say, raising an eyebrow and giving her my best stink eye. I heard about the beating you got. You should get out of the neighborhood. This place ain't no joke. Get yourself in a program. Don't you know there's nothing but hope for us until we're six feet under? Hope is for suckers, Angela. And frankly, I would rather get the shit kicked out of me again than go to rehab. Angela keeps up a steady stream of mindless chatter. I stop listening. The only way to get rid of her is to give her what she wants. I want to go back to nodding in solitude. My trash bag's hidden behind some rotting cardboard boxes. In exchange for clothes, she gives me a balloon. We prepare a shot. 
I fix first before letting her use my rig. She has no problem hitting a vein. They're thick as ropes. They're all that's left of her masculinity. I'm jealous of her veins. The Maryland voice has slowed to a purr. I light a cigarette for her and put it between her lips. Eyes closed, she smiles with every part of her face, as if this were the kindest gesture anyone has ever made towards her. The first shot of dope's always the best after a period of abstinence. The cigarette falls onto the trash bag lying between our feet, and I pick it up and finish it in a few drags. I come to sometime later. It's dark and quiet. I could be the last surviving person on earth. All of Angela's happy horse shit about getting clean keeps echoing around inside my skull. I have to obliterate the thoughts. I have to do more dope to forget what I had to do to get the dope. I lead a vampiric existence, out of the sunlight during the day and into the moonlight at night. I only come out at neon. An existence as mediocre and mundane as the bourgeoisie and the nine-to-fivers I detest. My life's become so small, you can barely see it under a microscope. Being a dope fiend is a 24-hour-a-day job with no time off and no vacations. And the most dreadful thought of them all, what am I doing? That is the one thought I have to kill. I need to end this unwanted moment of clarity. I still have a tiny piece left of Angela's gift. I'll light a few candles and prepare another shot. Hitting a vein by the flickering light turns into a bloodbath. If the blood coagulates, the heroin clogs up and won't go through the tiny opening of the spike. That's a waste I can't afford. A dozen holes later, I'm in. The girl's face staring back at me from my compact is suffering from malnutrition. My skin is diaphanous. I can almost see the bones in the front part of my skull. All I need now is lipstick, and I'll look fabulous. It's not in my purse. Probably because it's nestled in Angela's faux cleavage. She's an unrepentant thief. Crouching in the wild overgrown weeds, I poke my head out of the hole in the fence to make sure the coast is clear. At dusk, the air reeks of night-blooming jasmine intermingled with exhaust fumes and the infamous smog blanketing the city of angels. Six to nine is family values time. A sea of bodies flows in and out of the local stores, a pulsating microorganism, the antithesis of the invading scary monsters and super freaks that come out after all the good people have turned in for the night. The hustle and bustle takes away my loneliness. Thank you. Thank you, Ava. Um, like all the stories, they're all, I guess what you categorize as lighthearted romps. Um, our next reader is a great friend of mine, a great writer, who also wrote an amazing book called uh, Wrecking Crew, about a uh, junkie baseball team, among other things. Soon to maybe be a major motion picture with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. So, John Albert. Thanks, Jerry. Um, I've been advised to read slower by my wife because I tend to get up here and just read fast and then time's up and I tell really offensive jokes. So um, I could tell a joke. 
Um, I want to thank Jerry for this. Um, the, you know, this is a, I guess it was explained to me as a book of fiction, um, which, you know, I mean, I've done a lot of journalism and um, written some nonfiction, and this is my second work of fiction. The first one is actually, and this is no shit, it was a Harlequin novel. Um, in a, it was an anthology. Um, it was supposedly the more sophisticated type. Um, so, um, I don't think anybody's probably read that. Um, anyways, I'm going to read this. I'm going to read it slower. Um, the, you know, what I'll say is that it's fiction. It's based on a true story. Um, you know, it's a little... Parts are changed, but, but you know, the general premise is that it, it's sort of my version of, of the story of Frankenstein. And um, hopefully that'll be apparent. Um, I don't know. You know, I didn't really want to write about heroin because um, it kind of it's kind of bores me now. But um, but um, this is a thing that happened, you know, or is inspired by something that happened a long time ago. My persistence pays off, and I get a serious lead. A once famous singer of a now defunct hair metal band says he scored some overpriced Persian the night before. The deal was facilitated by an older record executive turned cokehead we both casually know. Without saying goodbye, I hang up and make a call. Twenty minutes later, I'm buzzed into a large Art Deco apartment building just off a seedy stretch of Hollywood Boulevard. Not waiting for an elevator, I scurry up several flights of stairs and arrive at a door where a shirtless, tanned man in his 60s named Ron lets me into a spacious apartment. Behind him stands a far too thin 40-something woman named Anne whose ravaged beauty perfectly mimics the fading grandeur of the building. The two have obviously been doing coke on a cocaine binge. Ron is sweating and talking a mile a minute about music. He used to be a big shot in the business and keeps dropping names of new bands he thinks will impress me. I don't really give a shit. This kind of chatter is strictly a coke thing, and I find it annoying. The buzzer finally rings. The connection has arrived. He's a thin Persian kid in his 20s, dressed kind of new wave. He appears as jittery as the other two, avoiding eye contact and laughing at nothing in particular. The three seem to know one another, so I hand over my cash. I will wait there while he gets the dope and brings it back. It's something I would never do on the street, but a mutual friend's apartment is another story. He doesn't come back. Initially, I tell myself he's just late like every other power-drunk dealer. I eventually persuade Ron to call him, but there's no answer. To placate me, Ron and his girl offer some cocaine. I know it will only exasperate my withdrawals, but I say yes. I just need drugs. After the rush of it makes th things worse. No surprise. After several more hits, I'm crawling out of my skin and so desperate for heroin that I feel like I can kill. Fuck you guys, I suddenly roar at Ron and his girlfriend. You were in on this the whole time. You're fucking responsible. We had no idea, Ron's girlfriend yells back with a shrill indignation. See what happens when you get involved with junkies? They just, f just get the fuck out of here. I skulk towards the door, stop, and turn back. You're responsible, I repeat 
pointing an accusatory finger at them both. This isn't over. I step outside and the sun is already up. As I walk back to my car, I'm absolutely seething. The whole thing is made immensely worse by my increased need for heroin. The world now appears too bright and everything looks ugly. With the cash gone, my options are severely limited and I point the car once again for my parents' house. Maybe my dad has left pain pills in their usual hiding place. Forty minutes later, I walk out of their house with the remaining four pills. It should last me a few hours at best. I drive and try to think who might be willing to loan me some money. It's a non-existent list. I decide to get some alcohol to take the edge off and pull into a liquor store. As I climb out, I see a familiar figure leaning against the wall, lighting a cigarette, and I get an idea I will come to regret. Troy Galt is the most frightening person I know. He is enormous, well over six foot five and built like a professional football player, which is what he would have become if he hadn't gone off to war. He has a thick beard that makes him look far older than his 22 years and he is undeniably insane. Not the kind of crazy where he directs traffic with a potted plant on his head. The kind where he will cripple someone and then calmly wash the blood off his hands. If that isn't enough, Troy has a metal plate in his head. He took a bullet to the dome while butchering some enemy combatants in close quarters. It seemed the army approved of his deeds but not his methods which reportedly involved decapitation. He was awarded an honorable discharge and came home to wander the streets and sleep on the beaches of his previous life. Troy and I went to school together, from elementary up to high school. Even as a kid, Troy wasn't exactly a pacifist and was capable of beating the shit out of anyone. But after several years of doing unspeakable things in the special forces, he seemed a different species. How's it going? I ask, climbing out my car, coming out of my car. He studies me and furrows his brow. Hey, dude, he says, I want some heroin. You have any? I shake my head. I should have a whole bunch of good dope, but some fucking dude burned me last night. Robbed you? Listen, if you help me get my dope back, half of it is yours. Interested? He smiles worldly like he's amused. I'm certain he's going to tell me to get lost. Unfortunately, he doesn't. I'll get your dope back, he says, and flicks a cigarette against my car. We arrive back at the Hollywood apartment building and grab the door as a tanned actor type walks out. He starts to object, sees Troy, and keeps moving. Upstairs, an irritated and still shirtless Ron opens the door, thinking it's just me. I can see concern in his eyes when Troy follows behind me. I calmly ask if there have been any new developments. Before he can answer, his girlfriend walks into the room, her eyes wild from the cocaine. Who the fuck is this, she says, gesturing wildly to Troy. This is my friend. Half of the money was his. Don't even try it, you asshole, she screams at me. Ron shoots her a look to shut up. She either doesn't notice or doesn't care. We're not scared of you and your fucking goon here, she continues. I know people that will eat you two for fucking lunch. I'm thinking of a proper response when there's a flash of movement to my side. I turn to see Ron crumpled on the floor with Troy, Troy looming over him. Hey, the girl yells out and begins to scramble for the phone. Troy picks up a floor lamp and throws it like a javelin. It hits her in the face and she drops to her knees with a groan. She brings her hands to her mouth and blood trickles out through my fingers. I am stunned by the sudden violence. Fantasies are one thing. To actually see people hurt is something entirely different. I stand there in shock. Troy studies me a beat. Why don't you go wait in the car, he says. I nod and start for the door. Hey, he calls after me. 
Don't you fucking drive off, he says, staring at me as a warning. I sit in my little car with my head spinning. I've made a serious mistake. I think about calling the police and trying to envision the various outcomes. When I finally make up my mind to call, the passenger door swings open and Troy slides in. He hands me a slip of paper with a handwritten address. There is blood on it. Are those two still alive? I ask, my heart pounding so hard I can feel it in my ears. Troy lights a cigarette, expressionless. I notice blood on his knuckles. They'll live, he replies. Let's go. We drive west into Santa Monica Boulevard in silence. The streets are crawling with cop cars. An hour ago, I would have been frightened. Now I have to fight the urge to flag one down. The address takes us to an expensive-looking modern apartment building a block off Westwood Boulevard in Little Tehran. As the two of us walk into the mirrored lobby, I decide to speak up. I don't want any more violence, Troy. Maybe we can just scare the dude a little. He didn't seem very tough. Troy stares at me blankly like a dog trying to read a novel. <laughs> Why do you hate violence so much, he asks sincerely. Because it's ugly, I say. The world is ugly. Always has been. Go back and read your history books. He presses the elevator and pulls a large knife from his pant leg. I'm going to do whatever this calls for. And what if they have a gun? Then what? Oh, well. We exit the elevator and count door numbers till we arrive at the unit. The door has been left open slightly, which seems odd. Troy walks in. I stand outside, terrified. When I don't hear anything, I head in after him. I see Troy standing in the living room, fishing, fishing a butterscotch candy out of his jar. I walk in to join him and get a surge of adrenaline. There on the floor is the young heroin dealer who ripped me off. He has a very noticeable bullet wound in his stomach. His eyes are open and blinking. Oh shit, he's shot, I exclaim, my voice shaking. I've never seen someone seriously this injured in my life. Yep, Troy says, sucking on the candy. We have to call an ambulance. He'll be dead before they get here, Troy explains calmly. It suddenly occurs to me that the guy on the floor is listening to us. Before I can say anything, Troy takes a knee, leans close, and talks to him. I'm not going to bullshit you. We can't help you. You're going to die here. That's a fact. But there's something I can do for you. Tell me who killed you and stole the dope, and I promise I'll make them pay for what they did. And there's more, but that's it. Thanks. <laughs> John, John, John. What a great story. I know how that story ends. But he's here, so it all worked out. Uh, our next guest, uh, Lydia Lunch, needs no introduction, so I'm going to make one. Um, star of music, stage, screen. Uh, not yet. Uh, and uh, she wrote a couple great books, Paradoxia Will Work for Drugs. But those who know her and love her just think of her as the sex kitten of the hate generation. So here she is, Lydia Lunch. Thank you very much. I just busted onto this gig because I do that kind of shit. <laughs> I love Jerry. It's the reason I moved back to L.A. about 14 years ago. He was still alive, and he still is, and so is Selby. I live in Barcelona now. I'm the wise one. All true. Ghost Town. Heroin Chronicles. Jerry Stahl edit. Never answer the door at 5.45 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Either somebody's too high, somebody's just died, or somebody's just arrived who wants to kill you. 
I drove 2,777 miles just to get away from him, from the Hudson River to the Pacific Ocean, and it still wasn't far enough away. This is still feeding back. It's my voice. A low-browed dirt bike racer from Topanga Canyon who was hell-bent on a cross-country creepy crawl had pulled up, swept me off my feet, threw me in the front seat of his dilapidated pickup truck and headed west, gunning it at full speed until we hit that slum by the sea, Venice, California. He said he was on a rescue mission to save me, that he'd been sent east by a mutual friend who was concerned for my safety after hearing one too many stories about hospital stays and late night 911 calls. And I thought, great, the sociopath abducts the schizophrenic out from under the psychopath in a late night snatch and grab. But something had to give. Because I was at the breaking point. The burnt out buildings, uncollected garbage, the broken street lights, the endless break-ins, the chronic shakedowns, and general havoc that was being wreaked on the streets of New York City's Lower East Side circa 1979. Well, they were basically a cakewalk next to the damage that was being done in my own apartment. The alcoholic, pill-popping Irish construction worker who I'd been holed up with for the past few months, he was getting mean. He was jealous, cruel, beautiful, an irresistible combination of mania and machismo. I like him that way, actually. By day, he'd play Iron Man. He'd be up at the crack of six, sporting boxers and a wife beater, a lucky strike behind his ear, throwing sandwiches in a bag, filling a thermos with black coffee and Irish whiskey, singing silly rockabilly songs, a smile, dancing across his sleepy eyes, just looking happy to be alive as he kissed me goodbye and disappeared out the door. Everything honky-dory, till the sun went down. The knives came out, and he stumbled back from the bar half-plastered after banging steel girders together for another eight-hour stretch. Now, the first 30 minutes when he got home, it was always filled with bliss. We'd kiss, fall back into bed, batter our bodies into each other until one of us started bleeding, and then we'd batter away a little bit more after swallowing a couple of seconds with a back of Johnny Walker Black, and that, my friends, is where the trouble came in. You see, Loverboy loved his booze more than he loved me, and in return, the booze hated my fucking guts. Probably because I refused to play slave to it and only used it as a lubricant for pharmaceuticals. It was a treacherous combination which triggered the bitch that provoked the bastard and resulted in a fucking that felt more like fighting, and the fighting resulted in more fighting and more fucking, and it would just escalate until probably the garbage trucks rattled off into the fucking distance. And he'd sleep it off for a couple of hours, and then he'd wake up the next day, pour me a cup of coffee, and say, good morning, darling, looking good again. Now, if Brando did Badlands while stoned on barbiturates and booze, well, you get the fucking picture. The one that played in rerun like a bad Turner classic that our TV eyes got stuck on night after night for weeks on end. And yeah, 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 and so it went and on and on. We were so wrapped up in torturing the shit out of each other that the world outside our ghetto hidey hole was just a squirrel gray cotton candy haze that we were just too fucked up to realize didn't muffle the screeching or the screams that were forever leeching out the windows and reverberating into the street below. And I guess if anyone on the West Coast was probably fucking listening, they would have heard us because our psychosis was getting carried away like a radio frequency and there you go I decided to spike his drink I packed a bag I left a note I climbed into the front seat of the Grease Monkey's pickup truck, which was parked at the corner of 12th Street and Avenue B, where he'd been waiting for me to show up for the past 36 hours, that is, until I could break away, so that he could save me. 
Four days later, we landed in Ghost Town, Venice, California. A grungy biker and his nubile Las Vegas bride, a bitchy witch dressed in black, casting voodoo glances at the neighboring hood rats. Now, they probably feared the look on my face more than I feared what they hid in their waistbands, but the gangbangers, they always left me alone. But the ghosts wouldn't. Ghosts were everywhere. Now, some people are afraid of ghosts and what lurks in the dark. They're terrified of the possibility of the unseen violator sneaking around with it in smirky shadows. But true evil, and anyone who lives in L.A. knows this, true evil is arrogant by nature and doesn't always bother to hide its intentions under the cloak of night. It gathers even more power by flaunting its vigor in the unadulterated glare of perpetual high noon in Los Angeles, at least the way I see it. A beautifully hideous sprawl. It stretches like an ever-expanding virus of sick contagion under the relentless sun as those hot devil winds, and I fucking love the Santa Anas, man. They blow down from the mountains, scorching the landscape. The promise of an endless summer shattered by gunshots and sirens, helicopters and hospital beds. Now, in 1980, Los Angeles County reported 51,448 violent crimes, 27,987 cases of aggravated assault, and 1,011 murders, if anyone was fucking counting, and I was fucking counting, because to me it was like, welcome to Hollywood, asshole, where anything is possible. Now, New York City may have been bankrupt, decrepit, and suffering from the final stages of rigor mortis, but the California dream, at least to me, is still a fucking waking nightmare of dead-end streets, ripe with bloated corpses where bad-beat poets, dope-seek singers, cracked actors, and petty criminals are all praying to a burnt-out star on the fucking sidewalk. All betting on a chance encounter which would flip the script in their lazy, lousy, late-night, made-for-TV movie of their wasted lives, and I guess I'm no fucking different because I've lived here twice and I'm back here again, motherfucker. <laughs> Everything was peaches and fucking whipped cream for the first six months of matrimonial bliss until the lunatic who rescued me from the maniac took a bad spill on the Pacific Coast Highway and ended up in a coma with two charges of vehicular manslaughter on his rap sheet and a letter at the side of his bed which threatened eviction from our Venice crash bad. I went home and started to pack my bags again. Now in the same way that a shark can smell blood, a junkie's sixth sense alerts them to any possible random opportunity that may arise in which he can hustle, steal, score, or move in on and take advantage of an unsuspecting Mark's benevolent disposition of friend's temporary weakness or, in my case, an ex-girlfriend's first night alone in a near-empty house. It was 5.45 a.m. on a Sunday morning when the doorbell blasted and shattered what was left of my nerves. Impeccable timing. Fucking bastard always had it. Even down the way he smoked a cigarette as I opened the door, holding it down between thumb and index. Deep drag, a small puckering sound as he pulled it away from his lips, staring straight into my eyes before he flung the butt into the wet grass, a sadistic smirk creeping in and cracking up the left side of his face. His husky whisper, hypnotic and irresistible. Good morning, darling. Spare a cup of joe for the road warrior, the Irish construction worker. 193 days later, at a distance of almost 3,000 miles, didn't mean a fucking thing to that madman. Convinced he could just walk in, whistle Dixie, and simply steal me right back. Now don't laugh, because I let him in. Now with the cunning of a snake that can sense whether or not you're about to attack at first, a schizophrenic can detect the atmospheric flux in a psychopath's gravitational force field, and something inside him had shifted slightly since I last saw him. His magnetism seemed less manic, more mesmerizing. He was fucking hypnotic. I'm off the sauce, he grinned, head cocked, quick wink, and one hand pulling out a small white packet of what I assumed to be cocaine from the inside pocket of his leather jacket. And on the fucking skids, I quipped, turning toward the bedroom door, which he quickly pinned me against. 
Don't walk away from me. Not again, please. I'll leave. I will. I promise. Let's just smoke a cigarette, do a little line, and if you want me to leave, I'll go. I promise. I just want to look at you for five more minutes. He slowly backed away, pulling me with him, easing me onto the couch as he got down on one knee like a love-struck delinquent, sucking air between his teeth and whispering, Damn, you are a luscious little bitch. As he opened the packet, spilled out some powder, rolled a note, and handed it to me with a sweet smile that concealed his deceit and treachery. I had to get the hell away from him. I'd be suckered right back in. I jumped up. I need coffee, I lied. After all, it was almost six o'clock in the morning. I needed to fucking split. I'll put some coffee on. I slithered off the couch, fake smile planted on my lips, suggesting he chop out a few fatties that I'd be right back. I planned on spiking him again. I still had half a dozen seconds left over from our binge in New York. I quit that shit when I quit him. But I figured if I made the coffee strong enough and black enough, he'd never know what fucking hit him. I'd grab a bag, write a note, and leave both the psychopath and the sociopath where they both fucking belonged in a fucking coma. I could hear the methodical rhythm of razor on glass, a deep snotty inhalation as he cleared his throat, a quick snort followed by a soft chuckle. Now, why the hell was that motherfucking chuckling? It prickled the hair on the back of my neck. I poured the coffee, emptied the red devils into the muddy brew and prayed for deliverance while slinking over to the couch. He handed me the note. I gave him the cup. I just wanted to get this over with. He swigged the coffee like he was chugging a beer, old habits and all that shit. I snorted a fat blast of what I thought was cocaine and immediately fell ass backwards, landing on the bag I'd been packing earlier that night and hitting my head on the edge of the table. It knocked me out. I woke up bloody and puking, projectile vomiting, all over the table, all over his dope, all over his boots, down the front of my slip, great heaving waves of gelatinous funk shooting out of my mouth and nose, thick, rich fists of sour phlegm cascading in golden arcs all over the room. I pissed myself and started to laugh. The bastard had almost killed me. I'd never done heroin. He knew that. It was my trip. I wasn't looking for nirvana, a velvet womb, a soft euphoric haze, or interstellar space to melt into. I mean, I dug the shit that jacked up the irritation level. Barbs and booze, coker speed, LSD, something that accelerated my already jacked up metabolism. I wasn't interested in slowing shit down, smoothing it out, softening the edges. I wanted to keep the edges rough, like the one I just hit my fucking head against. The one that had finally banged a bit of sense into my thick nugget that never, under any circumstances, will I ever again answer the door at 5.45 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Thank you very much. Wow, um, I, I'm just feeling so hosty. I forgot to mention that uh, Lydia's story will be an after-school special. It's currently <laughs> in development and will be on, um, I think, a Sprout channel. Maybe, maybe Nickelodeon, for those who have kids, Nickelodeon. Uh, I'm going to switch it up now and uh, change from heroin to speed. Um, as a lot of you professionals know, the difference between a junkie and a, a speed freak and a junkie, um, a junkie will steal your drugs, or steal your TV and spend it on drugs. A uh, speed freak will steal your TV and take it apart and leave it on your front lawn. It's, uh, or so I've read. Um, anyway, uh, no knock on the, other, on the other writers, but this, this is a little more highbrow than what, what we've become accustomed to this evening. And um, also, uh, nothing to do with drugs, but I have no fucking attention span, so I'm going to break this into five parts for easy bite-sized consumption. People are leaving again. What the fuck? <laughs> Jesus. Oh, well. Can't, 
can't take this shit personal. This is um, part one, bad sex on speed. The rush, the terror, the acrid stink of your sweat soaking through furniture three blocks away. Speaking of stink, what is that? Did somebody piss under your arms? Is that possible? Could they have pissed in your armpits three weeks ago and you just now noticed? Like say, when you get in the cab and the seat's wet after a pack of frat boys beer up too hard and leave bud puddles, hop inside and question. Why does your God hate you? You hear the splat when you hit the seat, but answer, because you're a tweaker. You don't know your full wet ass till you squish out of the cab. People never call the police until it's wet ass time. Al Pacino, sea of love. Speed keeps you so clammy, you can't feel damp. Just one of the many advantages. It's that giggle of recognition that I, I, I just feel like I'm reading to an audience of Almost one. <laughs> Fucking alcoholics, where's the dignity? Remember that dancer, Lola, Lurleen, Patricia, with the misspelled devil link on her neck? Hail Satin. <laughs> it's not a mistake, it's a statement. That is the only voice I do for all characters. It was, it was Lurleen. She had some kind of jailhouse hair lip that slurred her words to the left. You ass maggot, you think I'm a fucking creatine? <laughs> Like I say, upscale. <laughs> After 11 vodka tonics, you'd see day workers hand her five sweaty dollar bills to lift her skirt and gaze on her labia, which weirdly resembled a pair of chimp ears. You'd seen one once in a French Quarter voodoo store. It was supposed to bring its owner lifelong protection and success. From the moment the Sisters of Marie Laveau gift shop door hissed shut behind you, you knew you should have bought the thing. Everything would have been different. Why are you such an asshole? Are you crying? Want to talk about how Lurleen, Darla, no, Zelda, would boot her vag needle, let, I said it, let it stand up and quiver by itself, then grand finale with a Heimlich-like shudder and pass out forehead first on the bar with the rig sticking out between her legs? The pink tip made it weirdly like a little dog's organ, aroused. You suffer compulsive thoughts. Sometimes just images that you do not want to think but cannot stop thinking. This is one of them. Sometimes she'd wet herself. Who wouldn't? Five more bucks should croak when she came to and saw her condition. Remember when mysterious Hasids began to speak to you out of the ceiling? A rabbi would just appear. You'd realize you were staring at him, that he was talking. You'd think, maybe he was always there. You just needed this much crystal to see him. Those sad old stale eyes followed you as he spoke. Seriously. Why are you such an asshole? <sighs> you know, sometimes you write shit and then you're up here reading it and you're like, what the fuck was I thinking? But you can't hide. You just can't fucking hide. Part two, crashing. What's that like? Remember how you felt the first time you couldn't get it? I love that my daughter's here, by the way, because it it's such a bonding thing to read this, this material. Uh, what a lucky girl. Uh, remember how you felt the first time you couldn't get it up? The scalding rage, the way Cheeto-dry Cindy Carmanucci looked at you when you stopped trying to cram your 16-year-old shame handle into her? Look at... <laughs> Patent pending. Look at you, 30 years later. The episode still has you assuming the cringe position. You raised your sweaty face, your eyes met hers, and she looked at you like you were some kind of a cripple. A sex gimp. The original title of my autobiography, by the way. 
No, I'm kidding. It was Fifty Shades of Jew. <laughs> Crashing is that feeling, that kind of fun, some version of nonstop. From the minute you wake up, if you sleep, which you don't, you're not an amateur. Part three. But people who were never addicted don't understand. You did not do this shit for pleasure. You did it for relief. Shoot enough and the world whooshed to quiet and you were content just to sit, maybe drool a little, calm as a hyperactive toddler after his first lick of a Ritalin lollipop. What a romantic. Part four. Found elsewhere in the book, oddly. In the D-Speed Wing. Day one. You write a poem with Doorbell and Cerebellum appearing in the same sentence 36 times. They give you something for the shakes and put an ice cube in your mouth which cracks badly at the corners. Your bud, your blood, or your bud actually, <laughs> appears to be plaid. I'm going to go with blood. Day two. A counselor, later to become famous in a rehab reality show, keeps asking you in group what your deal is. After the fifth time, when he's standing right over you, you finally start to, you finally start to answer, and he laughs and yells in your face from two inches away. Bullshit. Day three. You see the albino. He has some kind of paint, he had some kind of paint thinner methadrine incident in his mother's carnival. Grabbing men and women's palms on the midway, reading them and weeping. You don't want to know. You don't fucking want to know. You can't remember if he's the one who hung himself or became regional vice president of Nabisco, South America. <laughs> five. Day five. Or day four, depending. Doesn't matter. Lose track of time like I have, standing here. I feel like I've never not been here in front of this podium. You are tired of not being a centipede. You just want a patch of dirt somewhere you do not have to keep pretending to know how to be human. And then on that cheery segue, we go to uh, part five, which oddly enough comes before and after part two. It's a speed thing. <laughs> Part five, what a good drug does. What a good drug does is make you believe perfection is what you are going to feel forever, then take it away. Throw you out of the cushioned fun car onto a rocky shoulder. Shrink your 900 page thoughts back to garble. De Dorian Gray your brain. I'm sorry, what? Are you still talking? Remember the fake punk in Berlin who bit off his toes? Be honest, Sparkle Pony. How's your life going? Really, have you looked in the mirror lately? No, really looked. Good for you. Hold on to that magic. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.